Lord, bless Howard as he shares with us what you've put on his heart this morning. Allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us all as we listen to the message that he brings. Amen. Thanks, Lynn, for uh, leading us all into saying the Lord's Prayer. No, don't be sorry. It was great. It really was. Well, as you may have noticed, uh, there wasn't a reading from the book of Revelation today. That's because between Easter and Pentecost, uh, we're going to take a break from our journey through the book of Revelation. Not only because it's jolly hard going, and I always get accused of giving other people the hardest passages to preach on. But you know, I always think I've got the hardest ones. Well, the main reason, however, that we're doing this is that over the past few years as a church, we've been involved with the Thy Kingdom Come Prayer Initiative, which is a worldwide interdenominational prayer movement that was initiated by the Archbishop of Canterbury and York in 2016 and now is involved in well over 150 countries around the world with hundreds of millions of people joining in and praying. It's, it's a movement to set aside the time between Ascension and Pentecost to pray for the renewal of the church and also committing ourselves to praying for five people to come to know Christ. And during the week, I had a great privilege of having my friend Andrew up here staying with us. And Andrew was one of the five people that I've been praying for over the last couple of years to come to know Christ. And over the last year, he has. And... Uh, some sad things have happened in his life, but that's a real positive, and I'm excited about that. This year, that season of prayer goes from May the 26th to June the 5th, and we'll be encouraging people to come and spend an hour in prayer here at the church during the week, and we will provide everyone with a prayer journal for that season. And there'll be little video reflections on our Facebook page to encourage people in their prayer life. But I also wanted, during this time, to focus our preaching on prayer. So between Easter and Pentecost, uh, we are going to be working through what's known as the Lord's Prayer, or if you come from a Catholic background, the Our Father. We're going to look at it line by line and petition by petition. Now the series is called Teach Us to Pray, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' Pattern for Prayer and for Life. Because uh, we have uh, the Lord's Prayer in two of the Gospels. The teach us to pray comes from Luke's account in Luke chapter 11. Where the disciples come to Jesus and ask him to teach them to pray. Just as John the Baptist was teaching his disciples how to pray. For the Jewish people it was important to know how to communicate with God. And the idea of the Our Father prayer as a pattern for prayer and for life comes from the prayer's placement in Matthew's Gospel, right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is teaching what it means to be a citizen of the Kingdom of Heaven. And it expresses and summarises the Sermon on the Mount in very clear terms. We are to put God, with whom, through Christ, we have a new relationship with as Father, First, and we are to trust him for our daily needs. And as we do that, you know, we can focus our lives on showing Christ-like love and the grace that we have received from Jesus to those around us. 
forgive their sins as our sins are forgiven. And to walk in ways that God has called us to. Deliver us from the evil one. You know, it, it, it says that our lives flow out of our prayer life. That our walk, our Christian walk, flows out of our heart-to-heart talk with God. Well, today, uh, to start that series off, I'm focusing on the first two lines of the prayer. It's address, our Father who is in heaven, and the first petition, hallowed be your name, or holy is your name. And you know, it's hard today, perhaps, to come to this prayer, and in particular the idea of our Father, without some modern challenges. A prison chaplain was talking to a group of prisoners about God, and he called God Father. And at that stage, one of the prisoners stood up and said, and stopped the conversation and said, you know, if God is like a father, then I don't want to know anything about him. And we live in a time when many have difficult expectations, difficult experiences of fatherhood. Fathers who were absent emotionally or physically or abusive and dysfunctional. It's hard then for people to get their head around the idea of God as a father. The other is the limitation of our English language, where we find ourselves wrestling with the idea of gendered words. Uh, It's possibly summed up by feminist Mary Daly, who wrote, If God be male, father, then male be God. Sadly, that summed up for her some of the attitudes that she had come across. And we'll deal with some of that as we look at the opening lines of this prayer. And we shouldn't be surprised that when we come to talk about prayer that we're going to come across difficulties. Because Jesus as well started by talking of the difficulties with prayer in his day as he introduced the Our Father. He said, don't pray like the hypocrites who enjoy public recognition for their prayers. They stand on the street corners praying. You know, they see prayer as a performance art where the focus is our spiritual status and superiority rather than that heart-level relationship with God through God's gracious love for us. He said, don't be like the pagans who believe their sheer weight of words will influence their deity. Because, you know, God knows what we need even before we ask him. I love this illustration about that. The Lord's Prayer, 66 words. The Gettysburg Address, 286 words. The Ten Commandments, 179 words. The Declaration of Independence, yes, this is an American illustration, 1,330 words. Uh, Pythagorean Theorem, and Chris is preaching in a couple of weeks, and if you want to know about the Pythagorean Theorem, ask Chris, she's a maths teacher. 24 words. Archimedes Principle, 67 words. US government regulations on the sale of cabbage, 26,911 words. You know, which is more important? And I'm quite sure that since that uh, illustration was noted that the US regulations on the sale of cabbage has been uh, changed and and increased several times as well. (laughs) Kind of illustrates it quite well, doesn't it? Well, let's have a look at the, the first line of the prayer. 
Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father. Now, in English, we put the possessive pronoun. I'm not very good at English, so I had to look up what the first one was. Our first. But in the original Greek and in many other languages, Father goes first. That's the priority. And we are invited to address God as Father. You know, something special. And some people have said that this is unique to Jesus' teaching on prayer, but you know that idea of God as Father is there in the Old Testament. In Exodus 4, Moses is told to tell Pharaoh that Israel is Yahweh's son, the firstborn, and he will take Egypt's firstborn if Pharaoh does not let my people go. Maybe it's hard to see God as father in the plagues of Egypt, but here we see God as father who uh, it's very much tied up with the idea of God's great love and care for his children and his desire and his moving heaven and earth to save them from slavery. God is the caring parent. As I've been thinking and reading on this, what I've found revolutionary is in actual fact the idea of our Father. Not just Father as an impersonal name for God, or even a nice new way of talking about God. But rather, our Father speaks of relationship. And it does it in two ways. The first that is, remember, it's Jesus who is teaching us to pray. Jesus is included in the hour. Or should I say that that hour includes us in that relationship with God that Jesus has. Jesus um, (coughs) expresses his relationship with God as one of father and son. Now in the ancient Near East that wasn't just a biological link. Rather, a son was expected to grow up and reflect his father's values and to do what his father had done. And we've got lots of companies that say, Joe Bloggs and Sons, they're expected to grow up and be in the family business. That's why when Jesus goes home to Nazareth, you know, people can't get past the fact that, hey, isn't this the son of Joseph the carpenter? He should be a carpenter, but here he is as a rabbi and a teacher. What an uppity guy. In John 5, Jesus says, I do all that I see the Father doing. You know, here he is talking about that relationship with God by, by, in ways that the ancient Near East would understand. Um, because the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. You know, Father has more to do with this love relationship and doing what the Father does rather than God's gender. Because Jesus does what he sees the Father doing, we too are invited into a relationship, as it says in John 1.14, as children of the Most High God. It is because of the Father's love for humanity that Jesus comes, lives, and dies for our forgiveness so that we may come in to share in being God's children. 
And that doing that, the father does also hold, uh, God as father also does hold a very important role in the first few petitions. You know, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we too are called into that relationship with father and child where we live out our father's values. That love relationship that we're invited into has that idea that we reflect God's great values and love. The second aspect of our Father that I found quite revolutionary is that it turns prayer into a corporate undertaking. You know, it's not my Father, but our Father. Because God is our Father, you and I are drawn together as God's children, as a family. Prayer does not simply become an individual pursuit. You know, while the book of Psalms has many single pronouns, in fact, there there are 600 in uh, 150 Psalms. I once had uh, somebody stand up and say, all these, you know, all these modern songs, they have, uh, you know, I in them all the time. And I said, yeah, look, it's terrible. I know a collection of 150 uh, worship songs where the word I occurs over 600 times. Isn't that terrible? We shouldn't use it. And the guy said, oh, yes, you're right. We shouldn't use that. I said, it's the book of Psalms. Sorry. Yeah. But it's a corporate prayer book. Um, and while we might, might say, see, saying that, you know, while we may think saying the Lord's Prayer can become some hollow repetition in liturgy and worship, it's important because it's a corporate expression of who we are, our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and how we are to live that out. You know, and when we pray, we can't help but be reminded that we're part of this family. So when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for the way in which we treat each other to reflect God's will and purpose. The church is seen as an embassy for the kingdom of heaven, a glimpse of the way it should be. And when we pray, give us today our daily bread, there's an element of being aware of the need of others and our part in caring for those who do not have. And when we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive them who sin against us, there is a, a real challenge that we look at how we treat one another and be prepared to forgive and to love. Well, the second part of that address is our Father in heaven, or who is in heaven. And uh, that's part of this address of God, and it gives an address for God, heaven. Now, in the Bible, the word heaven is used two different ways. The first is the heavens, which is often used to talk of the heavens and the earth. That's the stuff above us, to refer to the whole created physical universe. So you have the early Russian cosmonauts saying, uh, you know, we've been into the heavens and we saw no sign of God. But it just was his misunderstanding of the fact that when we say God is in heaven, it means the heavens. But also in scripture we have the sense of an all-present God um, whom the heavens and earth cannot contain. But heaven is also used to talk of that other realm, a spiritual place beyond time and space in which God reigns. Getting back to the book of Revelation, you know, we're used to seeing that in John's vision of the throne room with God on the throne. 
We see it in places like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah goes into the temple, which for the Jewish people was God's dwelling place, and suddenly he's transported to God's very presence that cannot be contained by the temple. But it's the place where God reigns. It's not far away over there. It's just this different realm. So that the God uh, who... uh, we see uh, as Father is not simply contained and domiciled in this created world. He is eternal and spirit in nature, vast, eternal and transcendent. Yes, present in this world. You know, and there will be a time when the veil between this world and God's will be removed totally. We call it a new heaven and a new earth. And it helps when we pray to our Father who is in heaven to realise that we cannot project our understanding of what Father means uh, in the earthly realm onto God. Our experiences of an earthly Father, because God is so much more and infinitely beyond that, is all loving, all caring, is righteous in everything he does. Psalm 113, which we had read today, and which is my favourite of all psalms, picks that up beautifully. It sums up the gospel so well. It starts off, you know, almost lost for words about the grandeur of God. You can imagine the psalmist just going, praise the name of the Lord, um, praise the name of the Lord, and then talks about the fact that, you know, this is this awesome, transcendent God who lives in the throne room, high above the nations, high above the heavens and the earth. But, who stoops down, you know, stoops down to see and to hear and lifts up, lifts up the poor and the meek and sits them at his table with the princes of his people. Even the people in his society who had no status like childless women, he sees them, he cares about them, he loves them. You know, that's profound. That's the God we meet at the burning bush who comes down to Moses and says, I have seen the plight of my people. I have heard their cry and I have come to call you, Moses, to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And I'll go with you to do that. It's the God we see in Jesus Christ That's uh, reflected in Jesus in in Philippians 2, where we're told that Jesus is equal to God, but laid it aside, became a human, a servant, was obedient even unto death, a criminal's death on the cross for our sake, and then is glorified. You know, that is the Our Father who is in heaven. I just want to make a couple of points about holy is your name. Or hallowed be your name, depending on when in history you learnt the Lord's Prayer. The first is that the first petition of this prayer is that the name of God may be holy. The name of God speaks of his nature and character. We know that God is holy. He is just and righteous, good and great, full of mercy and truth, a father to the fatherless. And you know, this statement is starting our prayer with adoration and worship. And that's the correct response to the goodness and the greatness and the mercy and truth of God revealed in Christ, to give him worship. It's the greatest and highest activity for humanity and creation. 
That's why as God's people, when we gather, we start with worship and praise. When we pray, it's a great way to start by acknowledging who God is and what God has done. The second thing I want to say is that by our praying, hallowed be thy name, I don't believe that we can make God's name any holier than God already is. Okay? Rather, when we pray, holy is your name or hallowed be thy name, it's a prayer that seeks for the transformation of our lives, that we may reflect more and more the goodness and justice of God in the world, that we may be transformed as we look at the holiness of God that we might become more merciful as we experience God's mercy. Of course, in Jewish thought, where ideas rhyme rather than lines and words, that, exp- that is expressed in the next two lines of Jesus' prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in prayer. So I want to finish by saying two quick things. The first is, I know we've got, I know that, Sometimes with my preaching, I can get caught up in the almost dry academic look at this prayer. But I want to finish by saying there is something wonderful and joy-filled in this prayer. In being taught to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed is your name. You know, the amazing grace of being welcomed into the family of the Most High uh, because of God's goodness and grace, his Father-like love. Because of Jesus Christ, his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, of able, being able to boldly approach the Son of Grace as children, not as groveling slaves or fearful of God's wrath. And can I say, one of the things I often hear when I'm praying in that voice at the back of my mind that I equate with God, no, I'm not hearing voices. <laughs> uh, you are my son and I love you. You know, and no, it's not a Messiah complex either. But I tell you what, it's a healing balm. It's a healing balm to know that I'm a child of God and am greatly loved. And my battered soul often needs to hear that and receive that healing balm. And you know, we're often a bit shy of praying the Lord's Prayer, but I want to encourage you to make it more a part of your life each day. Martin Luther's barber asked him the same question that the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. The barber did it in a letter because he had to flee due to the fact that he had been accused of murder, which I think was an occupational hazard for barbers in those days. Cutthroat razors are called that for a reason. And Luther wrote back and gave him very much the same answer that Jesus did. He said he did not trust his own words when it came to pray. He would read the scriptures and that would lead him into prayer. And even then he did not trust his own words, so he would pray the Lord's Prayer. However, each day as he prayed that prayer, he found that the words changed and became new and they fit the time and the season he was in. You know, maybe they were just the same words, but as he said them, they led him to reflect and contemplate on how he needed God as a father that day, or ways in which he could uphold God's character, or the needs of the day, and how God could meet them or had met them, and how uh, they differed from his wants, or people he needed to forgive, and things he needed forgiveness for, and temptations he was facing, and evil that seemed to loom large before him. And his life could be brought before God in those words that Jesus taught us to pray.
Although that as he prayed, each petition, all those things simply flowed out of him in words. I don't know, he doesn't articulate which it was. But Luther, like Jesus, encouraged us to pray that prayer each day. To make it the centre of our prayer life. Amen? Great. We are going to say it together again later, but we're going to sing it together later. Thanks, Meg.